All right. Well, this morning, our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through the Gospel of John brings us to the 18th chapter of John's Gospel. And in fact, we already covered some of the previous content in John 18 in our previous sermons on Judas and Peter. And so we jump all the way forward to John 18, 28. And uh, this morning, we'll be studying that verse all the way up through John 19, verse 16. You know, as we have moved our way through John's gospel account, we have observed on multiple occasions, we've paused and made the observation, that although the religious authorities harbored an intense, even homicidal anger towards Jesus, they were prevented from acting on it because of the mysterious restraining hand of God. Uh, Just a couple of verses, I could point out more than just a couple, but here's a couple. In John 7.30, for example, we read, At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In other words, they weren't prevented from laying their hands on him because of some, some barrier or something like that. It was just his hour was, hadn't come. God did not yet permit it. And then in John 10, we read, and Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And so far in the Gospel of John, John in his writing has depicted these men as lions. But they are lions on a leash. Their fangs are real enough. Their anger is real. They have a savage, passionate hatred for Jesus. And they have the means to destroy him. But they have been prevented from pouncing because of this mysterious restraining hand of God. However... In John 18, God the Father lets slip the the leash, and these men are finally able to get their hands on Jesus. They pounce. It's a truth, and it's a truth that I think we should enjoy and celebrate together as God's people, that nothing can come against Jesus or his church that is not allowed. That is true. But now the Father allows it. And what the confused and frightened disciples don't yet realize is that this has been allowed for our ultimate good and eternal happiness. So overnight, these men arrest Jesus. They bind him and bring him before the high priest for questions, questioning. One of their officers will even smack Jesus around a bit, forgiving, what, forgiving the high priest what he feels is kind of a smart-alecky answer. However, even though God the Father is no longer restraining these men, they are still somewhat restrained by another power, the emperor in Rome. You see, they had lost the legal power in about AD 6 or 7 to mete out capital punishment. They could no longer put people to death after Judea became a Roman province. And so now, if they wanted Jesus dead, and they wanted it done in such a way that they would be publicly vindicated, and it would avenge their injured pride, they would have to make the Romans their executioners. Do you remember all those times, so far in our study of the Gospel of John, when Jesus would have some public dust-up with these men? 
in the temple or out in the streets or in the marketplace. They would put a question to him, thinking they finally had him trapped. And Jesus, in this amazing spiritual verbal judo, would turn it back on them, and they were left with egg all over their face. This is what happens again and again and again in the Gospel of John. They think they've got him. They think they're going to make a public spectacle of him in front of the people. And Jesus turns it around, and they're the ones who walk away with their tail between their legs, looking foolish. They want Jesus hung on a cross. They don't want him to die in a back alleyway by stoning. They want this public, they want everybody to see it, and thereby be vindicated in the eyes of the people. Jesus had made them look foolish. And now they were going to show him what happens to Jesus. He's a common criminal. Where's all his power and wisdom? And look at where it got him. He came to a bad end. So they thought they might be avenged and vindicated if they could kill him. But there's a problem. In order to do that publicly, Rome has to do it. They can't. So early in the morning, a ginned-up and angry mob shows up outside the praetorium where the Roman prefect lived, a man named Pontius Pilate. According to the ancient historians Philo and Josephus, Pilate was an unpopular figure in Judea. That's to put it mildly. He governed in a very tone-deaf way toward the religious sensibilities of the Jewish people. Actually, I really think this tone-deaf is probably not the right term to describe Pontius Pilate, because when you read the totality of all that he did as governor, it seems from the historical record that he loved jabbing his thumb, thumb in the eyes of these people. He would do things intentionally to provoke them, and to say he was tone-deaf to how that would come off makes it seem like he was just kind of a bumbling idiot. I don't think that's true. He really liked to poke the beehive. This is kind of his personality. And we see this, by the way, not only in the works of ancient historians like Josephus, but also John in his gospel records this character trait of Pontius Pilate. We see uh, how he says, with a twinkle in his eye, do you remember he puts a, we'll see this uh, next week, but he puts a sign over Jesus when he's crucified that reads, King of the Jews. And they come to him and say, ah, you should change that. It should say, he said he was king of the Jews. And not in a tone-deaf way, but in a jab-you-in-the-eye kind of way, he says, what I have written, I've written. <laughs> just his words dripping with this contemptuous disdain. He just likes to stick it to him. That's who Pontius Pilate is. Now, uh, Pontius Pilate is... Uh, there's very little known about him in the historical record. We know that he hailed from a very minorly aristocratic family in what is now currently the region of Samnia in Italy. Uh, by minor, I mean he wasn't, he would have been like maybe the equivalent of a knight or something. He was not, he, he was not a nobody, but he certainly wasn't a man of great significance. He was fairly minor aristocracy. And he had, before coming to Judea as governor, he had no resume that we know of. He was probably appointed to that role by a man named Sejanus. I struggle to say that word, Sejanus. We believe this because when he was appointed governor in Judea, the emperor Tiberius had semi-retired to the island of Capri and had left the running of the empire to this man, Sejanus. Sejanus. 
And so it was likely him who appointed Pilate to the post in Judea. It's a prestigious overseas posting. We have no idea why this happened. We don't know what he did before that. And frankly, after he is recalled to Rome, we don't know what became of him after that. But at the time that this is happening, and this is an interesting historical sub, uh, something to note, Sejanus had just been executed in Rome. Word had reached Tiberius that he was, he'd overplayed his hand in a big way and was trying to consolidate power. Maybe he was trying to make himself the next emperor. There's a lot of different theories about this man. But Tiberius got wind of some stuff he was up to, had him offed, and then began to violently purge the empire of all of his friends. Maybe Pontius Pilate, too. And so Pontius Pilate, at the time when Jesus was dragged to the praetorium, was probably a man looking over his shoulder. He's like a mob figure whose boss just got offed, and he doesn't know when the bullet's going to come for him. He doesn't know when somebody's going to show up and say the emperor wants to see you back in Rome. He's probably living with a great deal of fear on his shoulders himself when this happens. So I think it's most likely that when the angry mob of Jewish leaders arrives outside the praetorium with Jesus in chains, that the man who came out to meet them was a careworn man, trapped between a people that really annoyed him and an emperor that he feared. He was not a Jew. He was a son of Italy. This was his overseas posting, and things had soured in a dramatic way for him personally in his life. And then we come to these words, and I'm going to read it. It's a fairly long block of Scripture, but let me just go ahead and read it, beginning at verse 28 in John 18. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, Caiaphas, that's the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Uh, We'll just stop right here for a second. I just want to point out something about these religious leaders. Uh, This is really the answer of people who are not used to being questioned. In their life, in the circles that they held, when they said something, they just expected it to be believed. Uh, These are people who are not used to having to persuade anybody to what they think ought to be happening. They're brittle, they're fragile. And as soon as Pilate even asks the question, why are you guys worked up? What's wrong? What did this guy do? Their answer is not an explanation. It's, we brought him here, didn't we? We wouldn't have done that with no reason. We're people of weight and substance. You should just accept what we say because we're the ones saying it. This is essentially their answer. But Pilate, of course, is not satisfied. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Again, I'll jab you right in the eye. You don't want to answer my questions? Forget you. Get out of here. You can deal with them. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Oh, okay. Now I see why you're here. You want this guy dead, and you can't do it legally. 
This was, to fill, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And now when we read that in our Bibles, we might wonder, how did he say that? Did he say it sarcastically? Did he say it as an honest inquiry? Is he actually asking Jesus, well, what is truth? Or is he saying, what's truth? And I think the answer is clear. I think he meant it sarcastically. And we know this because the next verse indicates he did not wait for an answer. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So he didn't even wait around for an answer. This is not a true question. This is a statement coming in the form of a question. What is truth means there is no truth. He said, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. 
So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. I want you to mark those words in your mind as we read here. When Pilate heard those words, he brought Jesus out. And sitting him down at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! Jab him in the eye. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And we'll stop right there. Uh, something to note here about Pilate. I think it's very interesting. John, in his portrayal of Pilate, and this is consistent throughout the gospel accounts, portrays Pilate as being ignorant of Jesus to such an incredible degree that he seems to have never even heard about him or any of his incredible signs or even why such controversy surrounds him. And this is really kind of amazing giving the public notoriety of Jesus at that time. This is, I think, surely a portrait of a man who is really kind of incurious and who has kind of walled himself away in the high, behind the high walls of the praetorium and whose sandals are rarely dusty from the streets of Jerusalem. He just doesn't venture out. He doesn't rub shoulders. He doesn't interact much with the people he's tasked with governing. And really, he doesn't really care about what's going on in the country he's governing. A lot of people today are like this. They're like Pilate. They are completely absorbed in their own pursuits and concerns. They're locked up in their own myopic little world. And their first serious introduction to Jesus or his church comes not because of personal conviction or even curiosity, but because public outrage comes knocking at the door demanding they render a verdict. Thumbs up or down. This is increasingly true in our own culture today. We live in this Facebook thread, Twitter-obsessed, gotta take a stand on everything. There's no real like place for serious discourse about weighty things. Everything is chopped down into a soundbite, a certain number of characters, and put forward, and everybody's running up their flags. you got to take a stand. There's very little actually talking across the fence. And I think increasingly in our culture, these people who are essentially little pilots, locked up in their little world, they've never really sought out the truth about who Jesus is or his significance or why there's such controversy surrounding him, their first real serious introduction to him will become because the church has taken some stand, somebody's outraged, somebody's upset, and the culture is forcing them to render a verdict. Are you for this guy or against him? This is what our culture today is doing, squeezing in like an anaconda. You have to make a decision. And by the way, this is what God does about Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is this kind of a figure. Remember when Jesus is saying to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they said, some people say you're this, some people say you're that. And he says, but what do you say about me? <laughs> Jesus is also constantly forcing people towards a place of decision. 
And Pilate is just this really disinterested human being. He doesn't care about these people or their problems. Jesus is just an unwelcome interruption at the beginning of the day. This was not on his to-do list. He'd rather devote his time probably to saving his own neck with everything going on back in Rome. And now this shows up. And what's interesting to me in part is this Pontius Pilate is arguably the most neutral, disinterested person we meet in the gospel. He has little interest, no stake in what he views as a Jewish matter. He enters a cultural or religious dispute in his mind as a secular official with sort of an annoyed, contemptuous neutrality. And look at how, and you can see why he's so jaded, Look at the evolving prosecution of Jesus. I already pointed out when they first come there and, and he has to come out to meet them because they will not come in to see him because he's a dirty Gentile. Right? <laughs> There's plenty of contemptuous disdain going on on both sides of this divide. They look at each other with contemptuous disdain. They can't come in to his residence because he's a Gentile, and that would defile them ahead of the Passover. So, and this is, a, this is their religious practice, and out of sensitivity to that, I guess, Pontius Pilate comes outside to meet them. But this is not typically how it works. You don't go pound on the door of the prefect's house and say, come out and talk to us. <laughs> That's not how this works typically in the Roman world. But he bows to certain cultural realities. This is what it's like to work among the people of Judea. He comes out, he asks them a question, which is a pretty reasonable question. What's your charge? What's wrong? What has he done? And they say, we wouldn't have brought him here if he hadn't done something. This is really not getting off on the right foot. Everybody's getting a little bit worked up. And Pilate's like, hey, you need me. You can't talk to me. If you are upset, just go do it yourself then. That's his answer. You woke me up. You dragged me out into the street. I asked you a very simple question. This is really the dynamic. This is what's happening outside the praetorium. And then look at how they shift their argument. Their next argument we find in verse 7 of chapter 19. They say, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. Now, this is a real weighty charge. This is a significant accusation. Of course, knowing everything we do about Jesus, they're spot on. <laughs> he has said that. He hasn't tried to hide the ball at all. That is exactly what he's been saying. It just happens to be true. But this is not impressive to Pilate. This is, again, an obscure Jewish religious matter. In the Roman world, Human beings were constantly declaring themselves God. The emperor in Rome was a divine figure. This is normal to an extent, right? But even so, this guy does not seem to be dangerous. When he does question him, he says, well, you know, if I was that kind of a king, my followers would be fighting. But they're not. I, my kingdom's not of this world. Pilate is unpersuaded by this essentially religious argument. Like, this is not the basis for execution in the Roman world. I get that you're upset. I get that he's violated the norms of your weird community. That's probably how he viewed them. <laughs> not how they were, but how he viewed them. But I'm not going to kill him over that. 
so then what happens? Well, five verses later, they come up with this. If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Oh, they got him. (laughs) They figured it out. They kept working on this formula until they found the lever that if you pulled it would get him to do what what they wanted. But how jaded is this? This is not about truth. This is about manipulation, exploitation, fear, and bullying. If you don't kill this man, Caesar will kill you. That's what they're saying. Kill him or you die. This is just really uh, extortion, kind of. It's really like throw anything at the wall, maybe something will stick. If the first thing we say doesn't convince you and the second thing doesn't, well, let's just keep coming up with some reason why you will kill him. Any reason will do. Any handy stick to beat Jesus with. At one point, Pilate, and we've already covered this uh, or read the verse, asks Jesus almost casually, are you the king of the Jews? This is another uh, verse where I wish we could have been like a fly on the wall and seen his tone, seen his demeanor. He says, are are you king of the Jews? Maybe he's just having fun. Maybe, I don't know. To which Jesus answers, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And I think this is one of those times, you know, oftentimes when Jesus speaks, we see that more is going on than what he is just saying. I think Jesus is asking more here than just where Pilate got this idea from. It seems to me he's actually probing Pilate's deeper motives for asking the question. Uh, Just a couple verses later, he says this, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is uh, very similar to in John 10 when he said this, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So I think that when Jesus asks Pilate this return question, he is actually asking him, Is this a heart question of yours, or is it just a procedural question? Are you just trying to lay the foundation for some prosecution, or is this a question that's on your heart? I think that's really what he's asking. But this exchange holds little interest for Pilate, and his response to Jesus confirms it. He's just as annoyed with Jesus as he is with the men out in the street. And he says, am I a Jew? Your nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Am I a Jew? Pilate still sees no role here for a Roman official. This is a purely Jewish matter. And he's sick and tired of him answering his questions with questions and giving him the runaround and being strange and just not playing ball, not giving him the respect he thinks he's due. If I ask a question, I want a straight answer. Who are you to talk back to the prefect? And once Jesus tells him that my kingship is not from this world, Pilate reaches a conclusion. He says, I find no guilt in this man. Uh, He's clearly disturbed, maybe. (laughs) He probably thinks something like that. I have to read a little bit between the lines here. But he does come away saying, I find no guilt in Jesus. This man has committed no crime that's worthy of me meeting out death on him. 
What's interesting to me is that over the course of this, these verses are the questions Pilate answers. Pilate asks way more questions than he does make statements. What accusation do you bring against this man? What have you done? Are you the king of the Jews? So you are a king. What is truth? So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Shall I crucify your king? Where are you from? You will not speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He keeps asking these questions over and over and over again. But the question at the heart of it all is the one he didn't even form as a question, which is what is truth? He says it contemptuously as a statement, as though it's unknowable, unanswerable. What is truth? But Jesus had said this. He says, for this purpose I was born... And for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And of course, Pilate then says, what is truth? It occurs to me that truth is very much on trial in our own culture today. This is just true. And there's some things we can learn about what Jesus says here in 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 this exchange with Pilate about the nature of truth. First, there is such a thing as truth. This is just something that I think we can all embrace wholeheartedly, but is very much up in debate right now in our culture at large. Is there even such a thing as truth? What is truth? Our culture is talking to the church and is saying to us the same thing Pilate said to Jesus. You talk about the truth, but what is that even? And Jesus makes it plain that there is such a thing as truth. There is objective reality. There is the ultimate reality being God. Truth to many people is like that. To them, truth is the view from their own house. And this is really a a conflict in our culture between the last vestiges of a cultural Christianity, a Christian worldview, which used to be the dominant worldview in our country up until about the 1960s, held that there was such a thing as objective truth. Now, the dominant worldview in our culture today is humanism, and humanism uh, postulates that truth is not found in a source external to ourselves, but is actually found within. You look within yourself to determine truth. Truth is personally derived and personally held. And one person's truth may not be the same as another person's truth. And so in the midst of such rampant relativism, that's the word we might use to describe truth being relative, uh, the, uh, the highest ideal in our culture has shifted from the pursuit of truth to rather creating a cultural atmosphere that's tolerant to all different kinds of truths. The most offensive thing you can say in America today is what Jesus said, that there is an objective truth, and that because there is truth, there is also error. There's also wrong. There's also evil. Some things are wicked, and some things are right and true. Uh, There is almost nothing you can say in the midst of our culture today that is more offensive than that. 
uh, in, and we know that this is the uh, stance of the Bible in John 17, 17, a verse we just studied last week. Remember, Jesus said this in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Where do we go to find the truth? We can't find truth within our hearts. That's like pulling water up from a poisoned well. Truth, objective truth, is found in a source external to ourselves, in the Bible. Years ago, when I was living in Southern California, working and living at Camp Maranatha, I had an office that looked out over a baseball field. And there in those mountains in Southern California, there were loads of rabbits. And have you ever seen rabbits fight? It's surprisingly savage. Like the first time I saw it, I was looking out the window at these cute little bunnies twitching their nose, and then they started to fight, and I was like, (laughs) that's awful. They bring up their rear paws, and they just rake. But I kind of became like a fan of the rabbits next to my office. I never named them or anything, but I got to know them a little bit. And uh, one day I was walking down to the office and I saw coyote tracks. There were also loads of coyotes up there in those mountains. And the coyote had walked in front of the office and out into the ball field. And I thought, I'll just follow his tracks. And I was walking, following the tracks of the coyote. And it came to a place where it ended in a scatter of rabbit fur. And my first thought was, even though I loved those rabbits, or I just enjoyed watching the rabbits, was, yes, he got one because I had been following the coyote's tracks. I was living in the coyote's story. I was watching how the coyote skirted along behind a fence and then came up around some pile of firewood at the end of the ball field. And the tracks got closer together. It was moving slowly. And then rabbit fur. And I thought, wow, he had a great hunt. He did it. But what if I had been following the rabbit's tracks? What if I had started in the opposite direction and had been following the rabbit's hippity-hop tracks across the ball field and then they ended in a scatter of rabbit fur and, oh, there's coyote tracks. I wouldn't have thought, great hunt for that coyote. I would have said, oh, what a sad end to this cute little rabbit's life. But this is how human beings are, don't you see? We're all living in our narratives, We're all following some track or another. And whatever happens, we deem it good or bad based on that story. This is the the world Pilate is living in. Truth is just a matter of perspective. Whether that scatter of bunny fur is the tragic end of a little life or dinner, great dinner, all just depends on your perspective. What is truth? Now, as Christians, we know we can't determine truth just by living in our narrative, just by processing the world by how we feel about it. No, our hearts, in Jeremiah it says, your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. We have to go to a source external to ourselves to determine what is true. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. And if we are not purposeful in allowing God's word to shape our understanding of what is true, renewing our minds daily through the study of his word, our hearts will inevitably, inevitably stray into error. Your heart is like a garden where weeds of error are constantly trying to grow. 
almost every show you watch, almost every book you read, every news report, every conversation in this fallen world plants a seed of error. And if you do not take regularly the hoe of God's word and chop at that error, it will grow, flourish, and bear fruit in our lives. We really have to be sanctified in the word regularly to chop up those error, that error that's constantly trying to grow and choke out the good things of the gospel in our hearts. Because we see things naturally from a false perspective. We will drift into positions opposite Almighty God if we are not being sanctified in the word of God. That is made holy. In fact, much of Jesus' ministry was spent addressing well-intentioned people whose understanding of what was true was sadly warped by their sin-clouded perspective. But here, before Pilate, Jesus was speaking of the truth with a capital T. Truth that everyone should believe in. Truth that comes from outside of us and which gives meaning to the world. The world doesn't make this truth. It doesn't come from the hearts and minds of people. People don't shape or change this kind of truth. It is the truth, not a truth for me and a different truth for you. But it's the truth for all of us, unchanging and absolute. Jesus came to bear witness to that truth. Truth, according to the Bible, cannot be created, but only discovered. Truth comes from outside of ourselves, and we can't control it or shape it. We can only submit to it. And when we submit to the truth, it will shape us. A number of years ago, I was driving in the car and listening to NPR, and the segment I was listening to cited various polls which indicated that views among Christians in the United States we're changing on a number of hot-button moral issues of our day. Uh, in the Vatican, they had just uh, had a new pope rise to that office, and he had some views that were seemingly progressive, and so they had polled American Christians to see if Christians' attitudes on the same issues were shifting at all, and they found that they were. And I remember the host chiding Christian leaders who were, in her view, who they needed to change their public stances to be more in step with the, where the people were at. And, and I just thought to myself, that's not how the Bible works. It doesn't change with the polls. The truth of Jesus was intended to shape the perspectives of men, not to be shaped by the sh perspectives, not made to fit the sensibilities of that day. This is the theory of evolution applied to moral law, right? The natural scientific theory of evolution says that organisms began here and they are progressing along towards a place of greater perfection. That over the course of evolution, what was a microorganism has now evolved and become a very complex organism capable of higher reasoning, and beautiful artistic expression, we are all progressing. And when you take that idea and you apply it to moral law also, it says that what was true thousands of years ago has been evolving since then, and that it is perfecting, it is changing, it is evolving over time into the full flower of what we now believe, which is more enlightened, better, higher, more beautiful and true than what was believed back then. 
This is a pernicious lie in our culture that says you're on the wrong side of history. This is where this statement comes from, this idea that truth is evolving, and you're behind the times. You're an evolutionary roadblock, a <laughs> road bump in the bump in the road, or a, a weird holdover from previous times. You need to progress. You need to evolve in your thinking. And the Christian hears that and goes, no, 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 no. Truth is fixed. Truth doesn't evolve. Truth doesn't change. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. Truth shapes us. We don't shape truth. The second thing that evolves out of this conversation between Pilate and Jesus is that truth is a person. Remember that very famous line from John 14 where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the truth. Truth is a person. When we say truth is on trial, you could replace that with Jesus is on trial because Jesus is the perfect embodiment of truth. Jesus, in coming into the world, did far more than just argue for the merits of a belief system or certain ideas. In bearing witness to the truth, Jesus was pointing to himself as the source of truth and the perfect living embodiment of truth. All that is right and good agrees with and flows from his character, and all that runs contrary to who he is is wrong. Everything that agrees with him is truth. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus doesn't just stand on the side of truth. He is truth personally. Remember Jesus' words in John 8, 31 through 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How better to reveal the truth about God that we might glorify and love him than to send the Son, the very image and reflection of God, into the world as the living personification of truth. One time Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Henceforth you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. We shall be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the living, breathing, walking around picture of truth. If you find fault with me, you have found fault with truth. Well, here's the flawed verdict of Pilate. There, I think there are three things that we can take away from in closing here about what's wrong with Pilate and the judgment that he renders. The first thing is that he thought he could wash his hands of responsibility. You cannot have nothing to do with Jesus. Pontius Pilate enters the scene as the most neutral, disinterested person in all of this gospel account. He has no stake in any of this. He enters into it reluctantly. He does the minimum work necessary in arriving at a conclusion. And in the end, he decides he wants to just wash his hands of the whole thing. In fact, in one of the gospel accounts, he does that very thing. He brings out a basin of water. He washes his hands in front of the religious leaders, and he says, do with them what you will, but I wash my hands of this. You can't do it. You can't do it. Everyone must decide personally 
what to do with Jesus. Is he who he said he was? Uh, In just a couple weeks, we're going to be worshiping on Easter Sunday. And here is the very simple arithmetic surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. If it didn't happen, we are all wasting our time here this morning. Worse than that, we are participating in the greatest, most evil hoax that was ever perpetrated against humanity. If that never happened, guys, we are more than wrong. We are participants in a great evil. But if it did happen, there is no other way to live that makes sense than the church. That's the very simple truth surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it did happen, then everything the church believes and hopes for will be vindicated in the end, and to live for anything else is a horrible, catastrophic waste of a person's life. They have totally missed everything. This is the simple truth surrounding the whole thing, and I believe there are lots of good reasons to believe the resurrection was true. I believe it with all my heart. But when we come to somebody like Pilate, he just doesn't make sense. He just doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, the Pharisees out in the street who want him dead make more sense in their response to Jesus than Pilate does. Jesus, if you understand the claims that he has made, if you understand the far-reaching implication of what he means when he says who he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King, Lord, Savior, the light of the world, the bread of life, the living water, if you understand the fullness of all of what this means, there is no room for you to respond to Jesus the way Pilate did. Pilate goes, eh, take it or leave it, <laughs> which just shows he does not understand this man at all. At least the Pharisees have some understanding of what he's saying, and they respond appropriately, given their understanding of all of that. They want to murder the guy. Other people want to worship him and follow him forever, and both of those responses make sense, but Pilate does not. He thinks he can just wash his hands of Jesus as though he'll walk away free of consequence. The truth is we're all sitting under judgment. Jesus came to offer grace and mercy. You cannot just say to Jesus, "Eh, I guess he's pretty good. (laughs) I find no fault with him, which is really the second fault in Pilate's judgment. He says that he believes him to be innocent, and by that I think he means he's harmless. He says, I find no fault with him, but that's not enough. That's not enough. Jesus is not content if we look at him and say, I guess it doesn't do any harm if he exists, if he says the things he's saying. That's not the point of why Jesus came. Jesus is good, but he is not safe. There are consequences for saying to Jesus, no thank you. And and I think that this is something that Pilate just fundamentally does not understand. He doesn't understand that Jesus is somebody who's harmless. No, 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 no. (laughs) He is the ultimate reality. If we will not have him as Savior, we can only have him as judge. This man sits in judgment of the one who will sit 
on the throne of judgment at the end of time. And he does not understand what he's dealing with. He does not understand the dynamics involved. He does not understand that everyone must render a judgment about Jesus personally, and it only makes sense to bend the knee or put up the dukes. That's it. He thinks he can walk away and not be involved in any of this. No one can. Jesus is pressing the decision upon all of mankind, thumbs up or thumbs down, who do you say that I am? We must decide. And here's the last thing. Although Pilate personally thought Jesus was innocent, he gave in to cultural pressure and ultimately turned Christ over to the soldiers to be crucified. Pilate, we see, was a morally weak person. He's a coward. He's guilty of great moral cowardice. Instead of standing up for the truth, he was concerned only about himself and his future. When they said, if you don't kill him, Caesar's going to be upset. All he could think about was that his benefactor, Sejanus, had just been killed. Other people throughout the empire were being killed for thought infidelity to the emperor in Rome. And now it's going to get back to him that this guy said he was a king and I cut him loose. And he's going to think I'm against the empire. The ultimate lever that the Pharisees pull is the power of government, the fear of legal consequences for his stand for the truth. He sees and, sit and states unequivocally, there is no fault with this man. But when they threaten him with the power of the state, he says, okay, we'll kill him. <laughs> and this is moral cowardice. And this is what has been attempted by governments against the church all across the globe, all down through the ages. They pull the lever of the state to separate us from what we know to be true. And Pilate is a prime example of this. Pilate stands for us as a warning against giving in to the pressure of the mob and turning our backs on Jesus. And that can happen far more easily than most of us realize. And so really the question I come away with from looking at the life of Pilate and looking at this exchange between Pilate and Jesus is who are you following this morning? In your life, in your office at work, in your neighborhood, in your communities, are you following the ways of the crowd and Pilate or the way of Christ? We don't want to end up on the wrong road, but by faith, we need to commit our life to Jesus Christ today because there is such a thing as truth. And that truth finds its ultimate expression in the gospel reality that Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, to die for sinners, to make visible for our naked eyes the truth of who God the Father is and his heart for us. Let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this warning from Scripture that certainly, God, there is increasing pressure to separate off from the truth. God, when we look at Jesus' life in the gospel, he was, who came, he was a man who came for the sake of peace, to put us at peace with the Father 
But for somebody who came as the Prince of Peace, for the purpose of declaring peace, to bring us into an eternal and lasting peace, he saw so little peace in the years of his earthly ministry. Insulted, arrested, beaten, flogged, mocked, ridiculed, his stand for the truth took him to the cross. And Father, we are aware as we stand here this morning, as, as we're here gathered together, that Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Father, you have not called us to live in such a way as Pilate did. We cannot wash our hands of the truth that we know. We can submit to it. We can live in a way that is shaped by it. Father, as we go out to proclaim the truth that we know, Father, I pray that we would, as it says in your word, do this with gentleness and respect. Certainly, when we look at Jesus, we think of him as he spoke to the woman at the well, or in the tender, patient way that he spoke to his own disciples, and many, many others. Father, that this this command to stand for the truth and to bear witness to it is not a command to be obnoxious. We know that, Father. Father, I pray that you'd help us to take our stand with gentleness and respect. But Father, we also know that we can't be like Pilate. We can't wash our hands of the whole thing and walk away. In the end, in the final day, there will only be those who are in the ark and those who are outside of it. There will be those who go to the right and to the left. There are sheep and goats. There's a narrow way and a broad way. There is no third way. Pilate tried to find a third way, and there is no such. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage by the Holy Spirit to stand for the truth in days when it is increasingly difficult to do so. Father, help us also by the Holy Spirit to take our stand for the truth with a spirit that represents you well. Father, help us to speak about the hope that we have within us with gentleness and respect. And Father, as we do this, I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to pour out your supernatural power on those interactions, that you would be pleased to draw many out of darkness into the light. Father, we are so glad to be yours. Pray that you'd use us in a wonderful way in these days and in this place as we wait for the return of Jesus, and may that day come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.